Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 31, the 1994 Grab Bag. Hello and welcome to episode 31 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that looks at everything random in the world of popular culture. I'm your host, Tom Paneris, and we are back in 1994, the most important year of the 90s, with an episode I'm calling the 1994 Grab Bag. Basically, with this one... Um, it's gonna be just a random collection of stuff that happened or was big or, you know, simply, I remember from 1994, uh, the idea was that as I was coming up with different ideas for shows for the podcast this year, I have this huge list and some of the stuff I thought, well, this wouldn't really make a really good, uh, if I could do a full episode about this. I don't know if I necessarily want to do a blog post about it. So I thought, well, what if I do like a list and instead of doing like a top 10 list or anything like that, I'll just do a random list, 10 random things that uh, I remember from 1994 that just have no bearing on anything whatsoever, except that I just decided to kind of pick them up here and and throw them into this episode because I think they were at least worth a, a look. Um, looking at my list, it is c- completely random. It shows some of my strengths in terms of my interest and interests, but also shows some of my weaknesses in terms of popular culture. There's an item on here that's there specifically because it's an area where I'm just not, I'm just not familiar with the stuff. I'm not, I'm not a, it's not, it's kind of out of my league or, or not just, I'm not in that ballpark, but I did want to get there and I did want to mention it. Also, just to just to catch you guys up on what's been going on in the blog lately, uh, the last episode I had, of course, was the 1999 movies episode, which was a break from the usual. And then before that, I had the 94 Rangers episode. And the same day that I posted the 94 Rangers episode, uh, not the same day, a few days later, I posted the it was a post called June 17th. 1994, the most important day of the 90s, and that was a look back at the entire day, which started with me taking my final exam, my regents exam in in English as as a junior in high school, and eventually moved into, uh, through the Rangers ticker tape parade in New York City, to the Bronco Chase, the very famous O.J. Simpson, Al Cowling's Bronco Chase down the freeway in, in Los Angeles, which kicked off the entire media spectacle that was his trial. And that trial only lasted, the whole thing only lasted for about a year, but the impact of that and the media circus surrounding it especially um, really still is felt to this day. Uh, if, you, if you really want to do a study of celebrity journalism as it is. So and I felt that was important to, to address. I also have a post that uh, I did was actually a, a 
a resurrection of a very old post from an old blog from 10 years ago called Leave Yourself Behind. It was a more personal piece about a trip that I took to Europe in, in the summer of 94, uh, right around from the end of June to about mid-July. And uh, it's very much a how I spent my summer vacation piece, but it had I had written it upon the 10th anniversary of my trip in 1994, back in 2004, and then dug it up, made some edits to update some stuff, and uh, posted it there. So go ahead and check that out. You can check that out over at popcultureaffidavit.com. And what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to play some promos. And when I get back, I am going to talk about 1994 at random. Grom, I have never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you, will remember if we were good men or bad. Why we bought, why we sold on eBay. All that matters is that 50 cent Captain Kirk Migo action figure. That's what's important. Cheapness pleases you, Grom. So grab me one request. Grab me the fruit of suburbia's garage sales. Let me drive those dealers away from that box of records and hear the lamentations of the children as I buy their Star Wars toys for a quarter. And if you do not listen, then to hell with you! Hello, I'm Chris Honeywell, and I make my living going to garage sales and then selling the junk I find on eBay. That's right, just like those assholes on TV. You can hear a podcast all about it where I tell you about all the good junk I got, how I sold it, give you tips, gripe, bitch, and moan, and even have friends come along with me. So check it out. It's called Garage Sale Gloat, and it can only be found at twotruefreaks.com, which is, of course, the home of the Two True Freaks Network. Duh. Okay. And we're back. So, like I said, when I sat down to plan the 1994 episode, I made an enormous list of things from the year, and you've heard a lot of that in the first episode. And over time, I've narrowed that list down to what I wanted to podcast about. In a few cases, the post and episodes are there because the topic is important to the year. But in most cases, they're there because the topic is personally significant. I wouldn't have done an episode about the 1994 New York Rangers if I wasn't a Rangers fan. Um, it just it wouldn't have happened that way. It would have gotten a mention maybe in in a sports episode or a sports post. So there, there's a lot of personal bias in all my selections for what we're talking about throughout the year 1994. So keep in mind as you're going through this, and if you're around my age or older and you remember things, you remember things differently, you remember certain things being more important, that yeah, I am talking from my own perspective and my own point of view. So there may be things that I miss, there may be things that I gloss over, there may be things that I get wrong. Uh, feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. You are going to say, hey, what about that at the end of the year? And this episode is a kind of sort of way to slightly rectify that. I might do another one later in the year if I can find, think of anything else that I, that I need to th- think of or cover. But this is the 1994 grab bag. It is 10 random things that weren't enough for a whole episode, but I definitely wanted to talk about. I have movies. I have television shows. I have uh, current events. I have music, and I have um, technology, and booze. 
No, really, I do. But anyway, we are going to start with a movie, and that movie is uh, one that definitely had an impact for at least a couple of years in terms of the type of high-speed thrills and things we were going to get used to seeing at the box office, and that is the 1994 Keanu Reeves movie, Speed. All right, pop quiz. Airport, gunman with one hostage. He's using her for cover. He's almost to a plane. You're 100 feet away. What do you think? Shoot the hostage. What? Go for the good wound and he can't get to the plane with her. Clear shot. You're deeply nuts, you know that? All right, gentlemen, what we have here are 13 passengers in an express elevator. Bomb's already taken out cables. Bomber wants $3 million or he blows the emergency brakes. Anything else that'll keep this elevator from falling? In the basement. He can strike anywhere. Anytime. Will the mystery guest please sign in? Why are they messing with me? Do they think I'm doing this for fun? <laughs> for LA cop Jack Traven. Tell me again, Harry. Why did I take this job? Oh, come on, 30 more years of this, you get a tiny pension and a cheap gold watch. Cool. The game began. Very exciting, Jack. <laughs> Some close calls, huh? When someone put the city of Los Angeles to the ultimate test. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is armed. If it drops below 50, it blows up. What do you do? What do you do? Now. Are you insured? Yeah, why? He's the only solution. We just got a ransom demand from your terrorist. Says he's rigged the city bus. Where's Jack? Where do you think? Stay on or get off. Get off. This is much better. Everybody hold on! trigger aimed at your head what do you do what do you do speed get ready for rush hour so um it's die hard on a bus okay now that's a little too simple of a summary and that's just kind of a pithy comment but um there was that point in the early 90s where die hot die hard on a blank became kind of the to-go phrase when you're talking about action movies. But this movie is significant because because of a couple of reasons. One, because of its star. Keanu Reeves had made an impact starting about maybe four or five years ago with Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. He was Ted Theodore Logan. And um, he'd been in a few movies and had been one of those Tiger Beat Bot 17 mag uh, heartthrob type of guys uh, had this band at one point called Dog Star, I believe. The one movie that I remember of his between this and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey that people really, really caught on to 
was Point Break, a movie that I'm not going to get into too much because I swear one day that's going to be its own episode because it's just that awesome of a movie. But Keanu had kind of, I don't want to say he become a punchline, but he was, you know, with Keanu Reeves. I mean, he was, he was a heartthrob type, and Christian Slater was starting to kind of go, it was going to be, it was on the wane a little bit at this point. And so was kind of Keanu's teen heartthrob status, but they put him in this movie Speed, and all of a sudden this elevated him back up. It's like every few years, Reeves kind of gets bumped back up into that A-lister, this is where you want to go for an action hero type of, of role because of, of just one movie he happens to be in. I, I'm Last episode, I mentioned The Matrix. I mean, it's not that his star ever really falls. It's just that, you know, there's an ebb and flow of his career, and this is where it went back up on an upswing. And uh, this is also the coming out party of Sandra Bullock. Bullock had been in a couple of movies. I think um, she had made her screen debut a couple of movies ago, most notably Love Potion Number 9. And I had first spotted her in two movies. One was the Kiefer Sutherland remake uh, of the French movie, The, the Vanishing. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland, Jeff Bridges, and Sandra Bullock plays, has a very, very small part as Canterbury's uh Girlfriend or wife, the one who is eventually is basically abductive and uh, abducted, and Kiefer Sutherland is searching for. Uh, but most, more importantly, or more prominently, she was Sylvester Stallone's love interest in Demolition Man. So, but it, but nobody knew who Sandra Bullock was. You go into Speed, and and uh, before you see that, if you see her, it's like, oh yeah, that's she's in that movie. Like she was, a, she was a hey, it's that guy at that point. She was, be, she was on her way to becoming a hey, it's that guy, an actress who just kind of appears in things, and like you know her from something else. Like Amanda Peet is kind of like that at this point. But anyway, that aside, Bullock and Bullock is in the the one portion of the movie that everybody remembers the most, and it's this in the middle of the movie uh, is this great, great scene uh, involving, like I said, it's Die Hard on a bus, but. Um, the whole thing centers around a, a terrorist played by Dennis Hopper, I believe is an ex-cop, sending, uh, basically terrorizing L.A., and, and Keanu Reeves is assigned to the case. And it's, it's this big cat and mouse game involving, you know, he's going to put these people's lives in danger, and Reeves is going to be the one to save everybody. And, and the big thing that everybody remembers is that uh, Hopper's got a bomb planted on a city bus, and if the bus drops below 50 miles an hour, the bus blows up. And all these people are on the bus. And Sandy Bullock ends up taking over and driving the bus while Keanu Reeves tries to figure out, how do I get all these people on the bus while it's moving at 50 miles an hour? It's an, it is this intense action scene involving a, essentially just a, a, a runaway bus in the middle of L.A. And it's it's done really, really well. I mean, the, the speed deserve the money it made at the box office is a great thing but the the reason I and I and I think um it's I have it on VHS somewhere I think it's Amanda's copy but I think I think I've got it and I haven't watched god I haven't watched Speed in a good almost a good 20 years so I might check it out but um it definitely what this one for me and the reason I put it on here was one it was one of the biggest action movies of the year the biggest grossing movie of the year was Forrest Gump uh, but this was right up there. This made a ton of money. And then Jan DeBont, who I believe was the director of this, uh, 
also would go on the next year to make Twister. Uh, and um, and they would again. They would, it was like they, this is where we kind of keep upping the ante on uh, action flicks for the summer. We'd get Independence Day the next year, and then we get into this sort of that weird mid to late nineties disaster movie fetish that everybody had going. But what this did was it definitely showed us that we'd moved away from the Schwarzenegger type of hero. I mean, the Schwarzenegger type of hero was kind of dead by 1994 uh, I realized that True Lies would come out the same year and would make a lot of money and it's a great movie but that Schwarzenegger and James Cameron having a little fun at Schwarzenegger's own expense it's a very tongue-in-cheek movie uh, but the straightforward you know your Rambo your Commando your Predator uh, those were movies that people were like looking forward to and going and seeing and by by 94 you know they didn't want the large in life hero. They wanted a guy who was, you know, the sort of regular guy hero. Bruce Willis is kind of to blame for the start of that because there was an everyman aspect to John McLean in the first couple of Die Hard movies that, you know, that wasn't in there in later ones. But, you know, Die Hard is, you know, some, he's a cop, but he's just basically a schmuck who was in the wrong place at the wrong time and, and has to, you know, help out. And, you know, you couldn't put Schwarzenegger in Die Hard. You could put Keanu Reeves in Die Hard in, in, in a certain regard, and that's why he works so well in this. Um, but the other thing that's important about this movie is that this is where you start to get the big action sequence being the highlight of a summer movie. You know, as opposed to, like, go back a couple of summers before. Okay, you have... Uh, was it 91 was Terminator 2 Judgment Day. That was the biggest movie of the year. It was definitely the biggest movie of the summer. And the thing, the, 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 there are things that people remember about that. They remember the story. They probably remember Schwarzenegger. They probably remember Eddie Furlong being annoying. Linda Hamilton stole the movie, basically, as, as Sarah Connor, just because she's just so freaking badass. But... The thing that people would take away is from it were the special effects, the T one thousand, all the morphing effects, and that occurred throughout the movie. And there were there was scene after scene after scene after scene. But when you get to speed, yeah, there's scene after scene after scene after scene of drama. But there's one like central set piece, and it comes right in the middle of the movie. It's the bus chase that you know. It's almost like I don't think they set this up as this was going to be the thing, but they definitely wanted people to remember the scene. And and I think after this, a lot of these movies would become formulaic as if, you know, they were almost like they were pitched in like a marketing meeting, okay, of like, we need to build around, we need to build a movie around this one scene. I've got a giant mechanical spider, build a movie around it. Sound familiar? Um, you know, I've got a bus chase, the bus can't go under 50 do it, you know, and then we've got to build a story around that. And that's what action movies seemed to become for a little while in the mid to late 90s. You know, you could make stars out of people who weren't used to being in action movies because you had a great, great set piece and a great, great action scene. And and, and Speed is really the first one where this really, really works. Um, and Independence Day would be, you know, similar. You have the destruction of every city, especially the White House. People remember that scene more than anything and then you have Will Smith and 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 you know that movie makes a star out of Will Smith but it's you know um you could you can hear it in the back of your head some 
asshole in a Hollywood boardroom going, let's blow up the White House, you know, and, and build a movie around that and, and, and all those sorts of things. So I think Speed, I don't want to say it started here, but I think that's the legacy of Speed. And, and I think that's, that's why it's so important. Second item on my list, completely at random, is the coming of Valerie Malone to Beverly Hills 90210. Now, way back, 20 or so episodes ago, I think it was episode 10, last year, last May, I did an episode about the 20th anniversary of the graduation episode of Saved by the Bell. And Saved by the Bell uh, starred Tiffany Amber Thiessen. She played Kelly Kapowski. Um, so she left uh, the Saved by the Bell College years in the spring of winter, spring of '94, when that was canceled, and there was the final television movie, Saved by the Bell: Wedding in Vegas, I believe it was called, where Zach and Kelly got married. After that, she was no longer playing Kelly Kapowski. She would, in the fall of 1994. Um, go to 90210 and play Valerie Malone. And I know I have said in the past that the early and late 1990s can be divided into two parts right around 1994. And usually the benchmark, the marker for that divide is the suicide of Kurt Cobain. Uh, I have a a running joke that I've probably beaten into the ground by now saying that there is a Nirvana Britney Spears generational divide and uh, people who were in high school in the late 90s kind of sit on the Britney Spears side and people who were in high school in the early 90s sit on the Nirvana side it's not exact it's not an exact science I'm sure there are exceptions to every rule I'm just talking out of my ass so please don't send me emails about it um, but like I said I know I said that you could you could kind of take Cobain's suicide and say that was kind of the moment where the early 90s ended, or at least the beginning of the transition into the what became the late 90s. But if you really want to add another demarcation to that, it would be the season premiere of 90210 in September of 94, because 90210 was literally on the air for the duration of the 1990s. It premiered in 1990, and it went off the air in 2000. So if you're going to look at at shows that defined the 1990s, this is in the top 10, maybe even the top 5. You've got Friends, you've got Seinfeld, you have The Real World, you have My So-Called Life, you have other shows that are, you know, there, but, but these, these are the ones that, that at least if you're looking at certain groups of people, I think Law & Order could probably be on that list as well, actually. If you're, Sex in the City came to define really the late 90s in a big way, and if you're looking at certain groups of people and certain type of people and, and certain, you know, situations, you are looking at those shows as these are the ones that define the, de- the decade, and 90210 is there. Because it just was, it was rich kids in Beverly Hills in high school for an entire decade. And, well, not in high school for an entire decade, but in high school and then college and then in the real world. So there was a sort of like growing up, growing old, people moving out. And because the show originally started in 1990 with Jason Priestley and Shannon Doherty's characters coming to Beverly Hills from Minnesota and being kind of this, this fish out of water thing. And then it developed into basically a nighttime soap opera about people, about 
teenagers and, and, and on, to a certain extent parents, although the parents kind of got phased out more or less in favor of the teen and, and, and 20-something storylines. And I don't think you have Gossip Girl, Pretty Little Liars, and so many of those other shows if you don't have 90210 to start with. And, you know, so give Aaron Spelling some credit because he was just, and he was just picking up a formula that he had started with way back in the late 70s and 80s um, with, with Dynasty. And was he Dallas? I can't remember if he was Dallas or not, but you you know what I mean. Um, so anyway, Valerie was played by Tiffany Thiessen, and she left Saved by the Bell. She went to, to 90210, and Shannon Doherty had left 90210. And if you know anything about Shannon Doherty and her relationship with the fans and her relationship with the producers of 90210, it was pretty terrible. Um, there was the I Hate Brenda fan club, the I Hate Brenda book. I mean, it was a... It was, it was one of the first times I'd ever actually seen fandom turn on a character or turn on an actress in ways that we've seen many, 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 many times since the since the advent of the internet. And I'm sure that you know when you have you have other fandoms before the '90s, you have Star Trek, you have other science fiction fandoms and fandoms of soap operas and things like that, and they. Um, you know, one only needs to look at Luke and Laura's wedding on General Hospital and the ratings that got to see that there was a fandom there. But being 13, 14, 15 at the time that 90210 premiered, this is the first time I experienced anything regarding a fandom. And I wasn't a huge fan of the show. Uh, I started out watching the show from day one because I caught the um, original pilot. The tele- It was the television movie it was aired as. And... Watched it out of just kind of a curiosity because, like, none of my friends were looking forward to this. And I remember we all watched it. And we're like, "What was this show?" Like, I we don't remember being advertised, and we're like, "Was it called Class of Beverly Hills or something?" Like, could not remember the name of it. Came back the next week. That was the first episode with Luke Perry. Came back the next week after that, and slowly but surely did watch it here and there. And people got really sucked into it toward the end of the season and into the summer. And Brenda became the most hated character, especially Doherty, who became, who has a reputation for being hard to work with, and or at least had one back in the early '90s of being hard to work with. So she finally left, and I don't remember the last Brenda episode to be honest, but I do remember seeing a story on it was like Entertainment Tonight or something about how they were bringing this new character in to replace Brenda. She was like their best friend from back home or a cousin or something. And in the first episode, she rolls a joint and smokes pot because she's the bad girl. And yeah, that's kind of lame, but Valerie was an awesome character on 90210. And that show, that show was such great cheese. And it's like, you can really divide it into the Brenda years and the Valerie years because the Valerie years were very much more soap opera, soap opera. It was much more adult soap opera, whereas the Brenda years were were teen were a teen movie with some some soap stuff mixed in. And and it was like I said, it it, it that's why it's a demarcation there, and um, it it made that show really fun. Another show that was fun that I barely watched, but I've seen this one. And that was, it was a spinoff of 90210, and this is my third item, it was Melrose Place. And Melrose Place Place started out as 
Um, there was a it was season two, I think season two or three of Nine Hundred Two and O. Jenny Garth's character is knocking boots with Grant Show. Grant Show played Jake on Melrose, and Jake it was something about he was doing was working at the house or something construction or whatever. She starts started screwing around with him, and the whole thing was just basically. A springboard for Melrose. He was going to be on Melrose, and they premiered Melrose after it. And Melrose was essentially started out as okay. It's the Generation X nighttime drama soap opera. They're all living in the same apartment complex. Let's look at singles. Let's look at reality bites. Let's make a television drama out of out of it. And hey, Courtney Thorne Smith, I recognize you from a ton of '80s movies. You were in Revenge of the Nerds too, and Summer School. And side out. Um, so somebody decided to make the spelling decided to make the show, and the show kind of struggled for the first year or two until they brought on Heather Locklear as Amanda, and then they brought on Marsha. They had Marsha Cross, and they had other characters, and they just basically decided, you know what, we're just gonna go batshit crazy with the plots. So one of the characters on Melrose Cross, uh, Melrose Place, was Kimberly, who was the lover of you see I didn't watch the show that much but I think she was the lover of Michael Mancini because Jane was his wife but then ex-wife and I think Kimberly was involved with him played by Marsha Cross who would go on to be on Desperate Housewives and the reason I have this moment is because it's not worth like an entire episode or something because there's this moment in, in 94 in one of the se- either the end of the season that ended in the spring or began in the fall, where Kimberly, Kimberly's basically the one who just like tries to kill everybody, and is like you know the almost the evil witch of the show, and she had been either like badly hurt or something or thought killed and came back, which happens all the time on soap operas. People get hurt and come back, and appearances change, and hey, looks like you got better. And there's this moment where during an episode. Where, you know, it seems like she's back and she's all put together, and she takes she, she she sits in front of a mirror and she takes off what's obviously a wig, and you see just all these crazy nasty scars. And if anybody thinks of Melrose Place, that's like the moment they think of. And it's the producers of this show basically saying, not only is the show going off the rails, we're Taking it off the rails. We are, like I said, we are going bat shit crazy with this show. And it would last until about, what, 98, I think? And it would be just, like, ridiculous plot after ridiculous plot and craziness. And you never expected any real um, reality from Melrose Place. And and this is kind of where it starts, where this is their... This is almost like their... Um, their statement in a way of like you know let's let's go let's do this so that's that's why i wanted to bring bring that one up and and if i can find a clip of it in the uh on youtube i will just put that in the show notes for all you to look at and i realize it's not much coverage to it but 902 and omeros were two shows that really were uh the linchpins of the fox network for for many many years Along with, say, the X-Files and their football coverage in the fall as well as their their sports coverage. But a show that premiered in the 1994 that really became incredibly important, even though you wouldn't have known it at the time, was a show on what was then called, I believe, like TV Food Network 
was eventually, you know, the Food Network, called The Essence of Emerald. Now, The Essence of Emerald was a half-hour cooking show hosted by Emerald Lagasse, um, where he basically did your typical Julia Child type of home cooking show. Emerald in his kitchen focusing on a particular ingredient or a particular dish for that half an hour, taking you through the steps, cooking it for you, you know, and by the end of the show, uh, you have a complete dish. I mean, that formula existed before him, and it still exists, even on the Food Network, which doesn't actually have a lot of cooking shows except for, like, uh, during their morning on the weekends and, and daytime programming. Uh, PBS still runs cooking shows all the time, uh, and famous chefs have them. Uh, Jacques Papin, John Besh has a great one. And it is. It's like, we're going to make two or three dishes today. Here's how you do it. This is what we'll do with it. You know, there might be a cookbook attached to it at this point that you can buy and and there. But so Emerald didn't start that. But what what is important here is that this is the start of Emerald on the Food Network. And as the decade goes on into the late 90s and then into the early 2000s, Emerald gets another television show. And the show is called Emerald Live. And Emerald Live is exactly what it sounds like. It's him in a kitchen in front of a live audience cooking for 60 minutes. And there's other shows on the Food Network that are also kind of innovative in this way. There's a show called Cooking Live with Sarah Moulton where the show was aired live and she would have people calling in asking for tips while she cooked on the spot. I mean, in real time. There was, until Rachel Ray became incredibly annoying, a show, her show 30 Minute Meals where she literally made a, a, a whole meal in 30 minutes. And... Um, the the innovation there was that Rachel Ray was not a chef. She was a home cook, just somebody who knew how to cook. So she was kind of, and she was, um, at the time, it was her, you know, it was like your older sister or the girl down the block who used to babysit you having a cooking show. And, and there was that sort of familiarity of her, um Granted, she wore mom jeans, but at the same time, it was you know you had you had those shows that that started to premiere in the wake of of you know in in the late nineties. And Essence of Emerald was the start of this. And my wife's got a book about the Food Network, um, which she says is really really good. And if I ever get the chance, I will read. Uh, unfortunately, it's on her iPad, so I'd have to borrow her iPad. Which is the downside, by the way, of digital reading. It's hard to lend somebody an ebook unless you have, find a way to do it. But you download it from Amazon. It's hard. They don't have the best with lending or sharing between Kindles and things like that. Um, if they do, I have not been able to, to to figure it out. But anyway, that's beside the point. Emerald would become the face of the Food Network for quite a long time, and in, in a big way, the Food Network is essentially, to borrow a phrase, the house that Emerald built. You know, I mean, the guy was popular enough, they gave him a sitcom on NBC. It bombed, but it was a sitcom on NBC. I mean, he was the first celebrity to come off of that network, which at the time, you may or may not have gotten because of whatever cable provider you had. You know, back in its early days, the Food Network was not 
on par of MTV. MTV you get as, a, as part of your basic cable package. And I think you get Food Network as part of your basic cable package now. But back then, you had to special order it. You had to call to see if they had it. You might have been part of a special package or something. It was not easy to get. And Emerald's got this show later on, Emerald Live, where he's cooking. And that's where all the catchphrases tend to start. You know, like, bam! And and his, you know, anytime he would mention garlic he, he's from he's got that boston accent like garlic and and the audience and you know i'm gonna add some butter to this and you know, oh, you know the audience would go crazy and because the audience was stupid but the point being this is where this network started to take off and this is with the essence of emerald this is where it has its kind of genesis where this network starts to find its footing in terms of uh actual cooking shows and shows that went beyond some of the travel-oriented stuff and, and other things that they did. Um, a book that I have read about that has some insight onto how a show for the Food Network is made and stuff is Anthony Bourdain's A Cook's Tour, which was the making of his very first show, the one that was on the Food Network back in the late 90s and early 2000s. Fascinating book. Uh, it was the follow-up to Kitchen Confidential, which is also a fascinating book. But um, The Essence of Emerald, I wanted to make note of that because, like I said... 1994 being the most important year of the 90s comes out of the fact that yes many things were there that were just these like big hits that were touch tones for the rest of the decade but many things were also there because this is where they started this is where the late 90s like this is in some cases this is the primordial ooze of the late 90s and most of the 2000s or something like that and um that is what's here you know you don't have emerald Lagasse. you don't have half of the people that have made fortunes off of the food network including guy fieri but you know you don't have a lot of what we've seen um, because it, he started to show that a cooking show could be a profitable enterprise. You know, don't forget, up until then, who dominated the cooking shows? I'm sure there were some on stations like Lifetime um, and, and maybe A&E or some of the other cable stations, but for the most part, your big cooking shows were on PBS, and I'm sure PBS was making a decent amount of money. I got decent readership on that. But Emerald, to borrow a phrase, kicked it up a notch over the course of the latter part of the decade and the first part of the 2000s. So that's why I mention it here. Um, the Food Network, the evolution of Anywhere Network, I know there are a lot of people um, you know, listen to other podcasters talk about when we're talking about comics, and they're like, they're, they say they're getting a little bit sick of hearing how the sausage is made, I think, to borrow a phrase from Michael Bailey. Um and I agree with that when it comes to comics. I think comics, to a certain extent, the making of the behind-the-scenes drama has been played to death at this point. There are some books that I will still readily recommend about both of those. I really did enjoy Marvel The Untold Story because it because it's, it's a really niche thing, and it looks in a very, very niche uh, thing. When it's something that you're interested in and you have very little clue into what actually has gone on, like something like the Food Network, or like uh, there's one about Nickelodeon in the 80s or MTV in the 80s, then it becomes more interesting to watch how the sausage is made. But if you've heard the same story about Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, or how uh, the, what happened with Jerry Siegel, Joe Suster, and uh, 
you know, back in the 1930s and 40s when they created Superman and, and you know, how the Death of Superman story came about and all these things. If you've heard them before and you've heard them over and over, you don't need another book telling you the, the behind-the-scenes look at the creation of this because you've seen it done. And the same thing with a lot of movies. You know, you you can... There's interesting stuff about the making of Star Wars, but then again, there's also the umpteenth retelling of, what is it, George, you can type this crap, but you can't say it, which is a funny thing, you know, but at the same time, you know, um, when it's fresh, no pun intended on the Food Network thing, it, it's interesting. And it's interesting to see that this is where our modern day Food Network really has its start with this show and this personality. Rounding out our first five before I go to break is not anything involving television. Uh, It is a current event, and that is the baseball strike. Earlier this year, I did two blog posts in conjunction with the Big League Blogathon by the Forgotten Film Cast uh, about the Ken Burns documentary, Baseball. Todd had asked uh, fellow bloggers to put in for a, 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 a movie about baseball, and I said, I'll take the documentary. So he, he said, okay, write two posts because it's a long documentary, and it's long. It was finished right before the strike, and it came out right after the strike started. The strike happened in uh, July of 94, I think was when the strike officially started. By the end of the summer, there was no baseball. And this is the first time since I was a kid starting in 1985 that there wasn't going to be any baseball at all. And it's important to note that because in 85, when I started uh, following baseball and following the Mets, there was a short strike. It It didn't last very long. The players went back to work after a certain amount of time and... Um, the season went on its merry way, and we had 85, 86, 87, all the way up to 94. But this was a very, very contentious strike between the Major League Baseball Players Union and the owners. There was kind of no commissioner at this point. Uh, Bart Giamatti had died a few years before, and Faye Vincent had taken over. And Vincent, Vincent was very impotent when it came to... Uh, his leadership and I believe he stepped down and Bud Selig was essentially acting commissioner at that point and eventually became commissioner uh, of Major League Baseball but he was the owner of the Milwaukee Brewers but I don't even remember off the top of my head what was the bone of contention it was money obviously it was how much money the players were getting salary caps were the salaries out of control who wanted what, and it seemed that nobody had, nobody was the good guy. I just remember that. I remember learning way more about labor relations in the summer of 1994 than I ever thought I would have, even more than I had learned in my 11th grade history classes. But I don't remember really, I, I just wanted to see baseball being played, So, um, I, but, so I didn't really side with one group over another. Hockey would have a strike in the spring of 95, and you'd have the cancellation of the World Series, which ha- hadn't happened in 90 years. It happened in 1904. Uh, the cancellation of the World Series in 1904 was because the club, the, the National League, would refuse to play the American League team. 
This was because of this strike. It effectively canceled the season. And it really hurt the game. The following fall, you have Cal Ripken breaking Lou Gehrig's streak. And that really brought a lot more people back to the game than had. And then you have a couple of good seasons. And then, yeah, you do have that home run chase between Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire that bring a lot of people back to the game as well. But um, it's... It's been, I think it's been slow to recover. Baseball has had great moments in the early 2000s. It did have some great moments. It did have some great series that kept people intrigued. Um, I was intrigued anytime the Yankees lost, uh, you know, and and I saw the Mets in, in some interesting series and games. But it's, this really did pave the way for football to become America's premier sport. Uh, you know, this combined with the Fox getting football rights, but you know, football became football was still big. The NFL was huge. Uh, still, it's not like it was an upstart league in the 1990s. But in the end of the 1990s, I think that if you've got baseball is number one and football is number two in as far as America's pastime, that would be flipped. Um, and I think baseball's still struggling, although. Not as much in recent years as it as it had been in the late '90s and into the 2000s, especially after because because if you didn't have the um, if you didn't have the strike, you had steroids and you had other things. So it, it has been a rocky road for the national pastime for the last 20 years. Even though it's still a fun game to play and it's still a fun game to watch, uh, two things I remember from this year around with the baseball strike. One was the cover of Newsday, the day of the strike, which had a black cover with a baseball. It said the end and the date below it. I cut that out. I put it on my locker. And for some reason, I thought it was cool to put June 25th, 1995 on a sticker over the date, the end, because that was the date I was going to graduate high school. Yeah, don't ask. Um, And the other one was Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated did a fantasy fictional like extrapolation of how the season ended. And it was this crazy wild season of like Michael Jordan hitting a home run for the White Sox and um, the Cubs winning the World Series against the Red Sox. And, you know, this record being broken and that record being broken because the, the 94 season up until the strike was phenomenal. It was one of the best seasons we had in years, and I think that's why a lot of people were disappointed. You know, the Montreal Expos, the Montreal Expos were in contention. I mean, that is how great that 94 season was shaping out to be. Even the Mets were sucking wind by the time the strike was there. It was a mercy killing in in that regard. But um, that's what's really disappointing about seasons like that and things like that. And I think that's what, why a lot of fans were hurt, aside from the greed involved. And um, and, and so, so the strike, again, one of those moments, one of those things in 1994 that really helped later define something, uh, whether it be, uh, in this case, baseball and, and, and the public's perception of baseball or how the game was played or, or, or how events kind of shook out. I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to come back with numbers 6 through 10 right after this. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have about a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio 
and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing, not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this Ultra- Of how they spoke at length. Continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers. And the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. And we're back again. This time I'm going to head into music for the next couple. Um, number number six and number seven. Um, number six is uh, it's kind of a general thing. And I'm not going to give it much mention because I'm not very familiar with it. Uh, and I may do a music episode later in the year where I talk about music that's kind of outside of my genre. I did a Green Day episode a few months ago, and Green and the Green Day episode that was that was my wheelhouse. Um, that was the album that changed my life. So I was listening to punk. I was listening to some metal. I was I was still listening to some pop, and I had whatever soundtracks I was listening to. Queen. I listened to a lot of Queen in high school, but I was not listening to rap or hip hop or R and B for that matter, or dance music or anything like that. Um, the person who was is my wife. Uh, I'm, I've convinced her to come on later in the year for an episode and I'm going to try to get her on for another one because I'd love to sit down with her and, and, and talk about, uh, nineties R and B and rap and, 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 and stuff like that. But in 94, the notorious B.I.G. releases ready to die. And, uh, and, and. I, I don't remember this album at all because, again, not on my radar. And I, I put it down on here because if you look at the 90s in hip-hop, you have certain people, and Biggie is one of them, especially the late 90s, because in two years he would be dead, as would Tupac Shakur. And that is one of those defining moments in music, in that genre of music, for that decade. Because rap and hip-hop especially through the late 80s and the early 90s, was beset by a lot of violence. A lot of violence that people hurt each other. A lot of just, it was it had an association with violence for whatever reason. We could do a huge, um, you, could do, you could do a paper on it for crying out loud. What I remember being a sheltered white kid in suburban Long Island was that there was this idea that like, Rap was going to kind of ruin everybody. I just, the tone that they treated rap and hip hop with in the media 
when you when you had movies like I don't know New Jack City opens and somebody gets shot at a theater and it's like oh no there's a movie starring black people and they're gonna you know and 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 don't go to the movie because you're gonna get shot like it seriously was there was this really really weird racist sort of undertone to a lot of the stories you would see about um, movies like that or gangsta rap you know which again it was almost like. You know, I swear, if I could, it was almost in the same way as, like, you know, how rock and roll was going to bring about, you know, the downfall of my parents' generation back in the 50s or something, you know, uh, like the like a blackboard jungle sort of scenario. And so people were really, really scared of rap music for some reason. And that's not why I never really listened to it. I just never got into it. And my friends were never into it. And, you know, when you're a kid in junior high, especially, and then into high school, you follow the trends that a lot of your friends chase. So that's what I did. But I, I wanted to point that out because it's one of the bigger albums of the decade as, as, as is Life After Death, which is the follow-up, which was 97. I came out right after his death, and you know, Tupac had been um, in and out of trouble with the law at this point. Snoop Dogg and Dre had released, um, you know, released albums as well. And you have this is the this is around the era where rap and hip hop really do take hold and take over a lot of the youth mainstream. Uh, and it's not 94 per se, but but I think that I think just the album is worth a mention. And it's kind of a like I'm putting a pin in this and saying I do want to come back to this sooner or later because it is like I said, it's an area of pop culture and pop music that I'm just not very familiar with. But bears mentioning, I wanted to the story of of just kind of what I recollect from it, and I did. And, and we'll move on. We'll move on to what was supposed to be a big cultural touchstone of my generation, which was met with a fair amount of cynicism, but also a fair amount of hype, uh, which was Woodstock 94. Mud mosh pit. It's a little different than the regular mosh pit. People are covered with mud. You can't tell if they're wearing clothes or what. What's your name? Jessica. Jessica. Did you mean to get this muddy? No, they threw me in. Did you get dragged in the mud? No, I walked in. You did this intentionally? Yeah, I followed my people in here. What does that mean, my people? Who are your people? My people. It's just like a tribe you have? Yeah, yeah. We're everywhere. How's your family going to think about seeing you all muddy like this? They're going to kill me. They're going to kill you. Why's that? I'm not supposed to be here. What's your name? Kathy. Kathy the mud girl. Did you mean to get in the mud? Sort of. The mud people live. All these people think they're going to stay clean. Woodstock 94. Right here. This I, is it. Are you one in of the, the guys mud. who's ta- tearing the, the people into the mud? Were you taking the people into the mud? New Jacks, they got to come in. Some people got dragged into the mud. Did you see that? What's that all about? Someone walks by and they drag them into the mud? We're just trying to make everybody like us. Hey, man, look at my back. 
I got mud all over my back. This is Mudville. Let me tell you something. These people aren't just jumping in the mud. They're doing mud jump rope. They're doing mud jump in the air. Mud volleyball, man. Only mud. 1994 Woodstock. John Sensio here, man, reporting. Check it out. In 1994, there was the 25th anniversary of Woodstock, Three Days of Peace of Music. So they decided to throw another festival, Three More Days of Peace of Music, up in, I want to say it was up in Socrates, New York, this time around, and feature very famous bands of the day. And you had to pay like an enormous amount of money to go. I know one guy who went in my high school and all three days camped out. He loved it. Uh, the sets that I remember from it were my friend Brendan had Metallica's set taped because he paid. Uh, he found out what night Metallica was playing, and I think he paid for it. And that's the other thing. Um, Woodstock 94, if you didn't have tickets, you could use what was what was a revolutionary thing from the late 80s and early 90s that your cable company offered, which was called Pay-Per-View. And pay-per-view was essentially like what we have as on-demand now, where you can rent, we call it on-demand now, but on-demand, you can rent the movie on-demand, and, you know, they add five bucks to your cable bill, or you can get the latest fight, and they've been doing that. They've been doing pay-per-view fights since the late 80s. I remember Tyson Sphinx was a, was a, was a pay-per-view fight, from what I can remember, but... um. But yeah, you, for something like Woodstock '84, you'd pay thirty, fifty, sixty dollars for it. Call up and order it. Uh, WrestleMania, WrestleMania was big. That was a big pay per view thing. We all watched pro wrestling. I remember going to Tom Hackett's house to watch WrestleMania Seven because his mom bought it on pay per view. All right, so pay per view. It's on pay per view, and I think you could order a package where you got all three days, or you could order a package where you got individual days or whatever. But Brendan had the Metallica concert part, but the other two parts that I remember vividly. One was, if you hear a lot of background noise, by the way, I'm recording this. There is a massive thunderstorm rolling through right now. I'm just watching this out my window. Holy shit. Anyway, um, so anyway, where was I? Okay, so Brendan got Metallica, but there were other two other performances. One that I did mention uh, in the Green Day episode was Green Days, where they, they they were playing and they had a mud fight with the audience because it poured it poured all through uh most of the weekend so people just got down and dirty in the mud and and uh and and crazy and the other one was nine inch nails where there's this image of trent reznor singing and he's just completely drenched in mud and 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 water and and uh other than that there was an official cd release to some of the performances I think in the end, some people remember it, but most people kind of thought of it as, oh yeah, that happened. It, it did not like it had the, it was a sequel. It was a lesser remembered sequel to something that had a pure cultural impact. You know, whatever you want to say was the impact of of the original Woodstock. Who? Whatever you want to say was the impact of the original Woodstock. I've seen the film that is really, really interesting, but... Woodstock 94, this was, was it like late July, early August of 1994? Um, I remember I was up in Connecticut staying at a friend from that Europe trip that I mentioned, and we watched, we watched it here and there. We listened to it on pay-per-view 
because he got it scrambled because you could still get scrambled pay-per-view channels before they just started blocking with generic screens. So we kind of heard some stuff and we watched MTV for the clips that they were allowed to play. But for the most part, it was like, okay, I'm going to pay like all this money for something. And, and it was a taste to come. It was wild, wildly successful that they did it again in 99. But 99, Woodstock 99, was an utter disaster it was very popular but you'd moved out of grunge you'd moved out away from pearl jam and the chili peppers uh, who although the chili peppers were playing i should admit the chili peppers you moved away from pearl jam and nirvana and, and these groups uh and, and grunge being the the foremost in music by 99 to this the rise of this shit new metal crap like limp biscuit and that was held, Woodstock 99 was held on an air a decommissioned Air Force base. It was hot all weekend. They were overcharging for everything. People, women got raped, um, there, uh, which was horrible. There was uh, just utter violence to the point where toward the end of the Chili Peppers set on the last night, it descended into utter chaos and the people there rioted and set fire to it. And it was... Again, it was this weird thing where, like, just how, like, uh, stupid one generation was, whereas five years before another one wasn't like that. And, uh, again, like, you you wonder aloud where all of this agro-teenage boy crap comes from. And, and you still see that in many ways. I still see that in many ways, being, the, being a high school teacher. Um and don't remember a lot of that from when I was a teenager, but now I just start to think I'm feel, sounding like I'm old. But Woodstock 94, not the cultural moments that's going to define my generation. If anything, it showed that um, promoters and marketers were trying to milk anything they could out of anybody in my demographic, whether it be t-shirts whether it be uh certain bands certain movies or whatever you know we're gonna sell you an experience and in some cases people took it in some cases they didn't number eight on my list the movie threesome you could call my junior year in college an experiment in living sure one two three having one roommate was okay but having two roommates was totally unexpected. If you don't stop eating my yogurt, I'm gonna kill you. You make murder sound so sexual. Sex, it's like pizza. Even if it's bad, it's still pretty good. Larry, this is Eddie and Stuart. Hi. It's about his hair. Is it fiberglass or steel? I find libraries very erotic. This girl, she is a live wire of sexual energy. You're just looking at my butt. He is what he is. He doesn't know what he is. He's confused. He's not confused about my butt. It's not normal. Three of us living together. I need a facial. I need to go on a diet. I need new shoes. How are the three musketeers? Oh, just one big happy family. <laughs> For the three of us together, the improbable became possible maybe this should just be our secret don't tell storm i know something that you don't what did you say 
and the possibilities were endless. <laughs> Sex is like pizza. Even when it's bad, it's still pretty good. <laughs> Which is the one line I remember. Uh, I have this on tape somewhere. I bootlegged this off of... I dubbed this off of a tape I rented years ago. And I considered doing a post about it. I had done a post about it years ago on my old blog. And had watched it again um, a couple of years ago when I had... They've been digging through some stuff and came upon, oh, there's all my old VHS tapes and threw a few of them in. This movie... This movie is here because I remember this being kind of like a... I don't want to say it was a scandalous movie in 1994 because that's kind of over giving it a little too much credit. But it certainly was, like, noteworthy in that it had sort of, like, something sexually happens in the film. And it does. You've got Stephen Baldwin, Josh Charles, and Lara Flynn Boyle. And, spoiler alert, they all do it together at the end. And, um, but it's, it's, it's supposed to be a movie about sexuality and sexual, as, as he says in the film, Josh Charles' characters in the movie, Sexual Deviance. But more about sexual identity and relationships, and um, it's a very what someone would have thought was a very '90s sort of concept of sexual openness, and it is that in some places. And there are some moments in that movie that really are mature in a way that is truly mature, not in the fake mature, you know, boobies and, 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 and cursing sort of way, but that are also well-written. There, there are moments in this movie that are well-written um, that show how tight friendships can get in college and how fucked up friendships can get in college and how fucked up relationships can be in college and how the four years that you spend together in college or, or in this case, one year you can spend together in college is such a weird, suspended adolescence and this weird arrested development type of thing that it's hard to define but it just that it ca- they capture that feeling very very well however it is so overdone at points it is so overacted at points Lara Flynn Boyle acts like she just stepped out of a drama class you know at a community college and and there are scenes where I'm like, you know, you're just going for way too dramatic stuff, and it gets too heavy in places. The soundtrack's pretty cool, but it, it, it ultimately, and it ultimately is dated. I mean, you've got, you've got like, you've got a couple of likable characters in the guys, but she, Lara from Boyle's Alex, is just she's not likable. She's not. Even if she wasn't t- the typical, quote, hottie that you'd expect from something like this. And Lara Boyle is very pretty and, and, you know, definitely worth the attention. But it's just one of those, those things where she doesn't make you, she doesn't make the audience want her. You can kind of see where the guys do, but she's just like, she's just so, she's so fucking irritating in the movie. And, 
And the movie itself, like I said, it it doesn't hold up very well upon subsequent viewings. Once you get past all the sex and everything, it's like, um, no, not really. Uh, but it's it's worth a look because this was a mainstream comedy, and up until then, this type of stuff. Not the type of stuff you'd see in a mainstream comedy. So that's why I think it was worth it. Because this was one of those, let's stretch what we can do with the movie in the 90s. That a lot of filmmakers and studios were taking at this time. And would to a certain extent. Although, once again, as the 90s wore on, the movies became more and more generic. And more and more formulaic. And the chance for experimentation, at least in the majors, went. But there was still plenty of really great indie stuff. And still is, really. But uh, this is this is like a sex comedy that kind of wants to be a sex comedy, but also wants to be a serious morality play. I, I, I can't put my finger on it. It's such an uneven movie. But it leaves enough of a taste in your mouth that you want to think about it some more. So that's why it's on the list. Last two things are not any movies, music, or television. They are things. One is a piece of technology that existed before 1994. And to a certain extent still exists today. But I remember in 94, 95, 96, right up until maybe about the end of the decade, a lot of my friends started wearing beepers. I'm Crazy Mickey, the Beeper King. I sell pages for a buck nineteen. No credit check, no activation fee. Just twenty one oh nine out the door. Need voicemail? Add it for just sixty nine cents a month. Thousands of pagers and pager accessories in stock. He's Crazy Mickey, the Beeper King. He sells his pages for a buck nineteen. Coffee nine out the dozen right away. This is the twenty first century paging today. Papa, can I have my allowance now? Um, yeah, I just, you got to remember, now, cell phones have been around for a long time. Zach Morris had a cell phone. It was a brick, but it was a cell phone. And, uh, and, and so, but you've got to remember that the people really didn't start getting cell phones, like, en masse until the early part of the 2000s, when they became more affordable and more reliable. So, what was the alternative? Well, all these be- this maybe this was just a Long Island thing, but all these beeper stores starting started popping up. And now, up until now, there were two types of people who owned beepers: doctors and drug dealers. And so, like this became a teenage thing, and maybe it was the drug dealer aspect of it that made it cool to have a beeper. But basically, I had plenty of friends. I didn't have one, but I had plenty of friends who did, and they'd attach. They'd get a phone number that was attached to the beeper, and you'd call the phone number, and the just like any pager, the number would show up, and you could attach um, a message, numeric message, to the page. So if you put nine one one. After your number, it would be, this is an emergency. So, you know, stuff like that. I don't remember. There were other codes that we would have for one another. But basically what would happen is that, you know, you call and then you call and, and, and this is a way to get in touch with each other. Until, like I said, cell phones kind of got rid of this technology. Um, I remember that 
it would be one of those things where if you were out and you wanted a friend to join up with you, you'd find the nearest phone, dial their beeper number, put the input the phone number of the phone you were at, and then hang up. And hopefully they'd call that phone back and say, hey, let's go hang out or whatever. And people used to do this with like pay phones because this is how drug deals work. People used to do this with pay phones because there were certain pay phones that you could still call. Like the phone would actually ring and stuff like that. And and um, I just remember I hung out with too many girls in high school and college because I remember going out and there were friends of mine who we'd go out and there was always that one friend in the group, usually a girl, who was maybe too close to a friend whom, with whom she was having drama or an ex-boyfriend. Like, at some point in the night, somebody would beep her and they'd actually answer the call and everything was going well. And then all of a sudden, I'm the one sitting at the other end of the bar or the other end of the place or, or somebody's house kind of all alone twiddling my thumbs while the friend I was there with or maybe the girl I was interested in consoled her friend because her friend got paged by her ex and it's tears and tears and tears and tears. And I'm just like, oh, I just want to go to the diner. And... But that was, but that it was kind of. I mentioned pagers because it kind of added a new dimension to the teenage culture of the 1990s. You know, we were, we were all out. A lot of us on our own in a big way that we hadn't been uh, before. We all had cars, and you know, so we could go places we were used to going, and we could get in touch with one another, and. The idea of mobile technology was just taking off, and it's just I find it fascinating that this became such a huge thing. And like I said, maybe it was just where I was from in Long Island, where you know, um, you'd go and and people would go to the shittiest places. These fucking beeper stores—they're worse than these cell phone stores that pop up now. These beeper stores are like you know in the shit flea market place, where like you know every once in a while the type of place they like arrest somebody for like like showing his pee-pee to children or something i mean you they'd go to these places to get cheap beepers like dude what the fuck are you doing and and it was like there was nothing nothing on the up and up after of of about purchasing a beeper or pager it was always some shifty guy named like vinnie bombats who like sold this to you and he was like you know dripping with like grease and sweat and 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 you know, but you were somehow cool that you had in your and uh, like I said, I, I, this is probably why I never had one. That and I would have had to pay the bill, and I was cheap and broke. Uh, I just find it funny that that this was a precursor in the same way that like you had stuff like um, on a recent just one of the guys, Sean Engel mentioned mini discs because he saw an ad for mini discs, and like mini discs were like precursors to MP3s, were like you know, a portable better ways to store portable music as opposed to the disc man or the walkman i had a walkman and and it's just kind of funny how it's like it's like this transitional year or these transitional years for what we now have like the middle of the evolution of mobile technology and somewhere like this is like the the homo erectus of of mobile tech you know whereas uh, you know, whereas the you know, Homo sapiens sapien is the current smartphone. This, you know, this is Homo erectus or Homo habilis or something like that. So, so that's why I brought up uh, what a beepers. But my last thing is is a serious source of embarrassment for me, um, and that's Zima. 
So, you're all set for a barbecue. Look what my mom got. You gonna eat that? That's brain food, Kevin. What's the classic alcohol beverage with burgers and dogs? I don't eat meat, you guys. Cheddar, free air. Get away from my burger, man. You guys want whale? No. Oh, oh, you're putting that there. Where's the cheese? Look at that. It's burning. Oh, man, that's hot. Oh, hey, pile it on, pile it on. Give me more. Hey, are those free-range burgers? Who cares? Have a Zima. Don't let that touch my burger, man. Um, Zima, I did a little bit of background research. I just looked this up on Wikipedia. And, uh, and just to, just to give you a little bit of a background, um, it was Zima, which means winter in the Slavic languages, was launched nationally in 1993 as Zima Clear Malt. Uh, it had been... It had been test marketed two years earlier in the city of Nashville, Sacramento, and Syracuse. It was a lemon lime drink. Um, it was and and part of the tab the the clear craze of the '90s that produced products such as Crystal Pepsi and Tab Clear. So it's a it's not necessarily a 1994 thing, but it was it was it was already around in 1994. But it basically was alcoholic Sprite, and I remember. Um, I remember it gaining popularity right around the time I was a junior and then into my senior year of high school. Now, this comes with an, with an asterisk. Um, I had no life in high school. Um, which is shocking, I know. But... Like I had no life to the point where I didn't go. To, I didn't. I did not go to a single party in high school. I went to one party, which was my friend's New Year's Eve party, but it wasn't like that. wasn't like an, that wasn't a raging gagger on the order of of what you know. I'd heard about football players' parties and 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 the um you know and this popular people's parties and stuff. Like my Friday nights were spent at the video store or at my friend's place and playing video games or watching movies in my basement and stuff like that. So. I and and I didn't really have an alcoholic drink until the summer of '94 when I went away. I had my first beer in a bar in Paris, and it was a Heineken. But I, I was in classes with a lot of people who were popular. And Monday morning conversation in some of my classes was always hilarious to listen to because they talk about their weekend. And I all I would hear, you know, all I could think of was like, well, let's see. I watched Fast Times at Richmond High. Um, I read some comics, played some hockey. Rented a movie again. There you go. Um, but, uh, but I would listen to these people say like, "Oh yeah, we went to Lotus and got wasted, and and oh, we were at so and so's house and we got tanked, and oh yeah, we got blitzed and whatever um, synonym you can think of for drunk." And at one point, I remember people talking about how they drink their beer, and in some cases, whatever the hell they could get a hold of, they'd smoke their pot and or bacon and brownies. But they take a they get Zima, and they would take a watermelon Jolly Rancher and drop the watermelon Jolly Rancher in the Zima, and it would flavor it somehow. As I got into ninety. Five, and I got into my senior high school. I was dating this girl, and she liked the stuff. And I think that's why I started drinking it. I think she did the water, the Jolly Rancher trick. I think I just drank it straight. And and from what I remember, it 
was really like drinking spit, like alcoholic spit. It's probably what Crystal Pepsi probably tasted like too, although I never really drank Crystal Pepsi, but it was pretty disgusting, yet it was booze, so I was going to drink it. And not that I shied away from beer, because I did um, when I got the chance to drink it, because again, in my hometown... I never had access to it. I went to a friend's graduation party and got completely shit-faced and never really, really drank until college. And I would drink beer in my college, college when I could get my, when, again, when I could get hand, my hands on it because I didn't have a fake ID. I was a freshman. Um, I remember, but I remember a couple of times in September, October of freshman year of college, this is fall of 95, where I had Zima, and I remember the very last time I had the drink, and it wasn't because of peer pressure or being made fun of, but my friend and I ordered it, got it. She and I got it. We also ordered some pizza, and I don't know what it was. It might we got we got pizza from Domino's, and there was mushrooms on it, and I had like maybe a Zima and a half at that point. I ate a couple slices of pizza because it was dinner, and I was on my way to gaining the freshman 40. And I started sweating, like, profusely and, like, was feeling horrible. And I, I was in my dorm. I was in the, the, the suite that we were in. And I was in there, and I made a beeline for the bathroom, and everything came back up. And my roommates were like, you're a lightweight, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no. Something made me sick. Like it was. It, this was not drunken. This was like I think I. I think it was probably the mushrooms and the pizza. I didn't. I didn't eat mushrooms and pizza for years because of this. But it was the last time I drank Zima, and because I associated with violent retching with with a drink that was basically you know somebody must have spit in a bottle and poured alcohol into it and said here drink this. So, um, it's kind of embarrassing that for like. Three months in 1995, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to drink Zima. Again, I was an amateur. I had not, you know, I had not joined the ranks of the professionals. I don't think I ever really did. In fact, if there's anything I'm a professional at when it comes to alcohol, it's been designated driving because I have a long and storied career as a Disney driver. I've put up with a lot of shit from a lot of people over the last 15 or 20 years. Um, and not because I'm a teetotaler or, or anything. Um, my reputation as a designated driver came from the fact that whenever we go out, I was the one, usually the one with the least amount of money. So I drive so people would buy me a couple of beer or two and then I'd just drink soda for the rest of the night because the bar would give me free soda. And that was me cutting down on costs so I could go out and hang out Friday night college. So I was smart. I was being economical by by driving um, because this is back in the day where a tank of gas would cost you ten bucks. Um, anyway, that's I totally got off topic about 1994, and I ended with something that wasn't clearly 94, but it was this sort of weird like uh, 94 for me. If you read that that entry I did about Europe, was this weird like. Me realizing it was that moment in my life where I realized that there was more out there than the hometown that I was in. And I like my hometown. And like I said, I go back there every time I go back there. I remember where I left. But but I Zima is just one of those things that kind of symbolizes that. It was my it was a first step to a larger world for me. And it was me 
obviously trying to figure out what how to do things as this nerdy suburban kid. And I know this episode's, well, been deliberately random, and it's been a little bit all over the place because I've been like, you know, here's TV, here's done, here's there's no connection. These are just things I was like, ah, I should talk about this, this, and this. And I might do another grab bag episode a little bit down the road when I start to hit like maybe November, December, and I'm like, oh, I should have covered this or I missed this and stuff like that. Uh, because these are fun because I'm just, you know, rambling about random stuff. But, uh, you know, there's so much of pop culture and nostalgia, especially for something 20 years old, is tied to your own personal experience. And you might think of, people might look at a particular year and say, this was a great year for entertainment. And it may be if you run down the list. Yet for yourself, maybe it was just a shit year. And it clouds your memory of what was there. 94 for me, and we're a little bit more past, I'm recording this on July 3rd, so we're right a couple days past the half point of the year. 94 for me, was a really good year. Um, it was it was the first year where I personally, I think I felt like myself was figuring out who myself was as a kid, as a teenager, as a person, as a blooming adult. And I fuck up many times along the way. But... Uh, and I, I still fuck up. I'm 37 years old and I still have no idea what I'm doing half the time. But at least uh, personally, that's why I look at it as one of the most important years of the 90s. That's why I wanted to end with Zima because I was just like, good God, I was a moron. And like, we were all morons for making this popular uh, for however popular it was. And uh, there, is an, there, is an, there is a article on Slate that I will link to from 2008 the long slow torturous death of zima and so it's about you know um about about zima or whatever and i know smirnoff ice is uh is still kicking around and that's basically kind of taking up zima's mantle and and taking the throne and run with it but uh but but as for threesome and 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 beepers and and biggie and and Woodstock and Speed and all these things. Um, it's hard to re- sometimes to fathom that so much could happen in a year. But then you remember that it's a year. It's 365 days and so much happens at once over the course of a year. Especially in a year like 1994. So um, I'm just going to continue on. I've got for the rest of this year. I have episodes and blog posts planned out. And scheduled about things like... Okay, I've got episodes and stuff scheduled and planned out for things like um, Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump, Star Trek in 1994, My So-Called Life, uh, Must See TV... The Real World, Clerks, Video Games, Books in 94, uh, The Lion King, With Honors, 
just looking at looking at other stuff, um, you know, and 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 maybe some other stuff beyond that. That's kind of what I've sketched out for the rest of the year as as you go on and on. And and uh, at the halfway point, I want to say I'll ha- probably have some other people on the show. I'm trying to get a couple of episodes together with some guest guest hosts, and uh, and and I want to just kind of end this part saying. Uh, this, this particular six months and, and this this particular part of the year is by saying, really, to those of you guys who have emailed in and who have said things on podcasts or said things online that they've enjoyed this, really thank you. I'm doing this because I'm having fun with it and it's been a blast. Uh, but I really do appreciate the great feedback I've gotten about this and and thanks in advance to those who've come on the show. Thanks who are coming on the show. Thanks to those who have come on the show. And I can't wait for the next six months and to see what, uh, see how that all unfolds. So come back in about two weeks. It may be a little later. I am going to Disney World in about a week. So uh, later this, at the end of this week when this comes out, because uh, I'm recording this a week ago from the air date. Uh, so I may, the next episode may be delayed. But. Uh, I will make up for that on the other end, but until and I won't tell you what it's going to be because I don't necessarily know right off the top of my head. But until then, go check out the blog for other entries, popcultureaffidavit.com. There'll definitely be at least one posted. And thank you very much for listening and take care. Act like you know, G go. I know what Bo don't know. Touch them up and go. You have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, or other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders. And as this podcast is intended for entertainment and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Clips, pictures, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit a blog where each week I take a look at a random thing in the world of popular culture and give my opinion as well as personal experience and memories I have with it, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback and other comments about this podcast can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness. Another down.